Thank you so much for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Pastor Steve here, loving every single week of our time in Luke, including this week, focused on God's revelation and our response. Christians believe that God reveals himself to us in creation, Romans 1, in our consciences, that's in Romans 2, in Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John and Book of Hebrews, and in Scripture, right throughout the whole Bible. God takes the initiative, and then we respond, whether it's Moses' burning bush, or Isaiah's temple vision, or the angel's announcement to Mary, or even Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, there is a repeated pattern of God's revelation and our response. We can either receive God as he reveals himself to us, or we can reject God as he reveals himself to us. The same pattern is evident in this week's passage, Luke 7, verses 11 to 35. God's revelation and our response, which we'll study under four headings. Dead, raised, verses 11 to 17. Doubts, dispelled, that's in verses 18 to 23. Thirdly, John described in verses 24 to 30. And lastly, critics answered in verses 31 to 35. So we begin with what is really a timely section for this Easter weekend. The dead raised in chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon after Jesus performed that long-distance healing of the centurion servant that we read about last week, he, Jesus, and his disciples and a great crowd went to the town of Nain, which is maybe about 25 miles to the south and the west of Capernaum, where they had been. And as Jesus and his entourage neared the town gate, they ran smack into a funeral procession. A dead man was being carried out of the town, likely to be buried somewhere nearby. Luke tells us that this dead man was the only son of his mother and that she herself was a widow. So she'd lost the two main men in her life, her, her husband sometime earlier and now her one and only son. That would probably put her in a very vulnerable situation economically. And this was no small funeral. We are told that a considerable crowd from the town was there with the woman, showing broad support for her. When the Lord Jesus saw the grieving widow, he had compassion on her. They told her not to weep. Of course, weeping is an appropriate response to death. But in this case, Jesus had something special that would turn her sorrow into joy. And also notice that in this episode, unlike other times, nobody asked Jesus to do anything. There was no request made of him. And nobody is said to have exercised faith in Jesus here either. But on his own initiative... Jesus interrupted the procession by touching the bier, which would be a a plank or a stretcher of some sort that functioned almost like an open coffin to transport the dead body to its burial place outside of town. The pallbearers, so to speak, stopped in their tracks when Jesus touched the bier and they stood still. And then Jesus told the young man to arise. 
can imagine the hush of the crowd, all those from Nain, all of Jesus' entourage, what's going to happen? Well, as with the centurion servant, all Jesus had to do was say the words, young man, arise, and it happened. The dead man sat up, and he began to speak. <laughs> I wonder what he said. Uh, don't you? What, what were those first words that came out of his mouth? We're not told, but what we do know is if he could sit up and speak, he is clearly alive. And just as Elijah did when he raised a widow's son, back in 1 Kings 17, 23, Jesus gave the young man to his mother, on whom Jesus had surely had great compassion. Now we know that Jesus could not only heal and cast out demons and teach and forgive sins, he could raise the dead. <laughs> not only could he heal a centurion's servant who was sick and at the point of death, not only could he prevent him from dying, but he could actually restore life to a young man who had already died. Uh, you can cancel the funeral and head back and turn it into a party because the young man who was dead is alive. The raising of the dead is quite a revelation of who Jesus is. And the people who witnessed Jesus' self-revelation responded with fear or holy awe. They saw God's hand in what had happened, so they glorified God. They declared that a great prophet had arisen among them and God had visited his people, just as Zechariah prophesied back in chapter 1, verses 68 and 69. Now, understandably, the, this report about Jesus raising the dead spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You'd, you would tell people about it if you had seen it, wouldn't you? I mean, Jesus stopped a funeral procession and brought the guy back to life. Even dead people obey what Jesus says. Arise. As Jesus' identity then is further revealed by him raising the dead, the people in Nain respond rightly by glorifying God for visiting them and for raising up a great prophet among them. But as we know, while Jesus is a great prophet, he is also much, much more. And that brings us to our second section of Doubts Dispelled. Doubts Dispelled. Last we heard of John the Baptist in chapter 3, he had rightly reproved Herod the Tetrarch for divorcing his wife and then marrying his brother's wife. Herod didn't like this being reproved, so in response he locked up John in prison. And now, as his disciples come to report to John everything that Jesus was doing, John appears to have had his doubts there in prison that, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one to come? I mean, earlier, John was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He pointed people to him. He witnessed strongly about him. But now John's questioning whether they should perhaps look for another. Jesus may not have exactly fit John's mold of what he expected of the Messiah. After all, Jesus didn't appear to be burning up the chaff with the fire of judgment, like it said back in chapter 3. So during those long hours in prison, doubts seemed to have sprung up in John's mind or, or his heart. 
And John shows us, doesn't he, that sometimes even godly people struggle with doubt. John shows us that sometimes even godly people struggle with doubt. So John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he's the one or or if another's coming after him. And that very hour in front of John's two disciples, Jesus graciously bestowed, bestowed sight on many who were blind, besides healing many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. John, Jesus' answer to John was his actions. Tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's exactly what Isaiah said the servant of the Lord would do. So as you mull these things over in prison, John, don't be offended by me and the type of Messiah I am, Jesus seems to be saying. Look at the evidence of how I am fulfilling the messianic promises. All these messianic signs show that I am the one who is to come. And you'll be blessed if you don't get tripped up and you reach the right conclusion about me. Here's the revelation. What's your response? Have you ever been there uh, where John was? You, You knew the truth about Jesus, but your life circumstances caused you to doubt. You're doubting in the dark what you earlier knew in the light. If so, then Jesus' word to John is also a word to you. Don't be offended by Jesus wishing he was a, a different sort of Messiah who delivered you from your hardships on your timetable instead of his. Instead, strengthen your faith by going back to how Jesus perfectly fulfills the scriptures written about him centuries before. You may be in a a prison of sorts right now, but the Messiah is on the move, fulfilling God's purposes in his way. Dead raised, doubts dispelled, and now John described, John described, after John's disciples left to bring Jesus' message back to him in prison, Jesus took the opportunity to describe to the crowd who John was. I mean, after all, they they hadn't gone out into the wilderness to see a flimsy reed shaken by the wind. Certainly not a man dressed in soft clothing living the high life. Unlike those at king's courts who were living in luxury and splendid clothing, John wore camel's hair and a leather belt. He he ate locusts and wild honey, not Chateaubriand. (laughs) So, So what did they go out into the wilderness to see anyway? A prophet? Yes, John was a prophet, but he was also much more than a typical prophet. John was the prophet of whom it is written in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. As one commentator put it, John was the hinge of redemptive history between the Old Covenant era and the New Covenant era. And that's why Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. As the forerunner and the herald of Jesus, the Messiah, no one up to that point in history was greater than John. And yet, 
And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. See, John was still part of the Old Covenant era. Remember how his disciples fasted? But now Jesus was bringing something new and much, much greater. So even the least in the New Covenant kingdom of God under Jesus was greater than John, who lived so faithfully and boldly in the old age of promise, in the time of shadows, but not yet in the new age of fulfillment, the time of reality. It's sort of like this. Uh, Charles Babbage was greater than all in conceiving of the first digital programmable computer. He is the father of the computer. But he lived in the pre-computer era. And now, 150 years after Babbage's death, my three-year-old granddaughter, Cecilia, is far greater in what she can do with computers than the great Charles Babbage. You get the analogy. As one theologian said, even being the greatest prophet is less important than being a lowly member of God's kingdom. In your study, question three prompts you to consider all the privileges you enjoy in God's kingdom that John didn't simply because of the era in which he lived prior to Jesus' death and resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, etc. Well, when Jesus' immediate audience right there absorbed his words, they had a divided response. The people who had undergone John's baptism for repentance of sin, and that included tax collectors, they received what Jesus said, and they declared God just or right in the way he worked through John in his time and Jesus in his time. But the Pharisees, who had not been baptized by John as a sign of their repenting of their sins, rejected God's purpose for themselves. And that's a weighty thought, isn't it? To reject the purpose of God for oneself? You see, the two groups hear the same message from Jesus. They have the same revelation coming to them, but they respond in totally different ways. Some gladly receive Jesus' revelation, and others completely reject it. There were Pharisees, you see, and lawyers and others in his generation who rejected both John and Jesus. They, they weren't followers of either John or Jesus. They were just critics of both. And in our final section, we will see these critics answered. Critics answered. Jesus compares those who rejected both John and him to children who are sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We, we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So what's the point in this comparison? What is this saying meant to convey to us? I think it's this. John the Baptist came in an austere lifestyle. He drank no wine. He just ate locusts and honey, not even bread. But the rejectors dismissed him as having a demon. See, John's baptism of repentance was sort of like singing a dirge. Repent. But John's rejectors did not weep over their sins. They refused the baptism of John for repentance. And then Jesus, the Son of Man, came drinking and eating freely. He 
He turned water into wine at a wedding. His, his disciples didn't fast like John's and the Pharisees did, but Jesus' rejectors accused him of being a glutton and, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There was just no winning over these critics who found a way to reject God's revelation through both John and Jesus. The rejectors were like uncooperative children who wouldn't join when they were invited to play funeral or to play wedding, so to speak. They would not respond positively to John's somber preaching of repentance or to Jesus's more festive kingdom ministry. They wouldn't repentantly weep over their sins and they wouldn't rejoicingly dance when tax collectors and sinners were forgiven and entered God's kingdom. All they did was snarkily sit on the sidelines and criticize John as demon-possessed and Jesus as a gluttonous drunkard. John, ah, he's too gloomy and eccentric. Jesus, right, he's way too worldly and too chummy with those sinners and tax collectors. And yet, Jesus has an answer for his critics. John's ministry, as the last and in some ways greatest Old Testament prophet, and Jesus' ministry, as the Messiah, were both suited to their time. Wisdom is justified by all her children. The wisdom of John's behavior and the wisdom of Jesus' behavior are both justified by their children, their followers. We should take John's solemn message of repentance seriously, and we should celebrate Jesus' good news of forgiveness through faith in him. God's people see his wisdom in both John and Jesus. It's all about God's revelation and our response. Jesus has revealed himself as one who can raise the dead and make the blind see and the lame walk and the leper cleanse and the deaf hear all the while preaching good news to the poor. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. In an application, the question is, what is our response? Consider these four possibilities in response to God's revelation in Jesus. Number one, glorify God for sending Jesus to raise the dead and do everything promised of the Messiah. Glorify God. Secondly, when you find yourself doubting, as John did, strengthen your faith in Jesus. Right? Don't doubt in the dark of hard circumstances what you have learned in the light of God's word. Strengthen your faith. Thirdly, don't be like the Jewish leaders who rejected the purpose of God for themselves by dismissively criticizing the, the messages and the ministries of both John and Jesus, as different as they were. Instead, fourthly and lastly, gladly receive the good news of repentance that comes through John and salvation that comes through Jesus. Believer, it is Holy Week and Easter Sunday. Be glad. Be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in creation and in our God-given sense of right and wrong, in your written word, and in your Son, who makes you known to us. It is such a grace that you don't just conceal yourself from us, but you reveal yourself to us. 
And in response to your revelation, we want to glorify you for sending Jesus to raise the dead. When we find ourselves doubting, we want to have our faith strengthened by your word. And we want to gladly receive your good news of repentance and salvation from all our sins through faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.